Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 18, and the Lord is my rock. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it's living and active, that it it penetrates into our hearts as Hebrews 4.12 says, And Lord, that your word reveals that you are a rock, you are a fortress, you are a very present help in time of need. So Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that it, it opens eyes and ears and that it that it points us to Christ. And so we, we pray as we look at this, this great chapter, Psalm 18, that you would show us how you are our rock and our fortress, our very present help in time of need. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we have a we have a lot of work to do ahead of us today, uh, so I'm going to read one verse from uh, Psalm 18 rather than read all 50 verses, which will take a, a, a little bit of time, so that we can get straight into our our time in God's Word. Psalm 18:50 says this: Great. Salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. One of the most famous pictures from the 1940s is Alfred Einstein's VJ VJ Day in Times Square, sometimes called the Kiss. If you grew up in America, there's no doubt that you've seen this picture. When the news broke that Japan had surrendered, crowds flooded into the streets all across America. The war was over. In Times Square, a young sailor swept a nurse into his arms and planted a kiss on her. And Einstein was there with his trusted Lisa to get the photograph. This this picture became a part of American culture because it captures the joy and the euphoria of that moment. After years of fighting and sacrifice, the killing and the dying was over. We had won. Something in that image captures the elation and the excitement of victory. That same sense of joy and euphoria is behind Psalm 18. David sang this song after God gave him victory over all of his enemies. His words jump from the page. The superscription to this psalm, it gives us the historical setting. This introduction is unusually long. The second longest superscription in the Psalter, just a hair shorter than Psalm 60. It says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the song of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. After decades of fighting, the wars were over. David finally experienced rest from his enemies. He won. And to reinforce this historical background, 2 Samuel 22 contains Psalm 18 almost word for word. This psalm came near the end of David's life. It is the third longest psalm after Psalm 119 and Psalm 78. 
David is reflecting back over a long life of conflict and battles to praise God for a wonderful victory. In fact, the sense of of joy and euphoria in Psalm 18 is even greater because the victory of Jesus Christ is bursting through the seams of Psalm 18. David wanted David himself wants us to realize that he is writing about more than his own victories and so he ends the words that I just read in Psalm 18:50 which I'll read again and says this. Great salvation brings this great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. God had promised David to set one of his descendants on his throne as an eternal king. God said in 2 Samuel 7, 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The offspring he mentions in verse 50 refers to Christ, the eternal king. He is the king that we meet in Psalm 2 at the doorway to the Psalter in Psalm 2, 6. He will rule forever over all the nations of the earth. David mentions him at the end of this psalm to say, as if to say, this is not about me. I'm writing about Christ, his anointed to come. In fact, the actual content of Psalm 18 is it's too big and too full to refer, refer only to David, like a river that overflows its bank. This psalm overflows the historical events of David's life. There is simply more here than was true of David himself. The light of Christ in Psalm 18 is like a floodlight behind the ice sculpture, shining through and melting the, the ice with its heat. The writers of the New Testament, they saw that this psalm was about Christ. We see this in two places. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 18.2 as the word of Christ in Hebrews 2.13. In Romans 15.8 and 9, Paul quotes Psalm 18.49 as the words of the Lord Jesus to show that salvation was for the Gentiles all along. saying, And it says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Then citing Psalm 1849, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. As we read Psalm 18, the triumph of our Lord Jesus shines through David's joy for the victories that the Lord gave him. David was given victory to make possible the greater victories of his greater son, the king, the Lord Jesus. And David starts his opening words with praise in, in Psalm 18, 1 through 3, which says this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The opening words, I love you, O Lord, my, my strength, are not found in the parallel song in 2 Samuel 22, and they stood, they stand out because they've been included in this psalm. As a result, this psalm is not simply a catalog of the great things that, that are done for David. It is a response of genuine devotion and affection for God. David's love identifies him immediately. As a man after the Lord's heart, he loved the God who had rescued him, the God who helped him. Many people do not love God, even though God has rescued them again and again from danger. 
Judas was in the boat with the rest of the disciples when they were about to drown. He saw the Lord rebuke the wind and calm the sea. And yet he did not love Jesus. He loved money and helped himself to the money bag. Many people today have experienced wonderful answers to prayer when God rescued him, but they still do not love the Lord. They pray for healing and God healed. They prayed for a son in Iraq or Afghanistan or on and on and on, and God brought them home safely. They prayed for God to help them make the mortgage, to have food on the table, and God provided for them. And yet in all this, they do not say with David, I love you, O Lord, my strength. They, they are not thankful. And by the way, because of the grace of God that, that transferred us, as Colossians 1 says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, among other things, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he commands us because of the grace of God that we have received to be thankful in all things. And instead we complain. Instead we grumble against the Lord. Loving God is one of the most unmistakable marks of the people of God. God's people not only receive his blessings, but they genuinely love him. By the way, this is a command as well because of the grace that we've received from Christ. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 very clearly tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul and all of our strength and to love our neighbor. When someone comes to Christ, it is important that they understand the facts of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that God raised him up on the third day. And yet knowing these facts is as useless, totally useless, unless one comes to faith in Christ alone and actually loves Christ. This is why the apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Love for God is the great dividing line that runs throughout all humanity. God's people love him. Those who do not love the Lord are cut off from the Lord. And then David stacks up eight names to say who the Lord is to him. My strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock of refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold in verses 1 through 2. The pronoun mine is repeated with each of these names. David claims the Lord as his God. He has a personal relationship with God. He is known by God, and he knows the Lord. This list also includes almost all the names that focus on God's protection and salvation in the Psalms. No other psalm brings together as many of these names as Psalm 18. David gathers them all in one place and lifts up the great name of the God that he loves. He wants us to love the Lord too. That's why he includes them. And then David in Psalm 18, 4 through 9, shares how God saved him. David's life hung in the balance many times throughout his life as a shepherd. He was in danger from wild animals. Goliath was the first of many men he fought in combat. Saul almost caught him several times. His own son Absalom almost killed him. No wonder that death is David's primary concern in verses 4 through 5 in Psalm 18. He was caught in the cords of death, the cords of Sheol, and the snares of death. This meant that he was about to die. Death is like an octopus dragging him under the waves. Jesus was not dragged away to death. He did die. He was bound in grave clothes and was laid in the grave itself, Psalm 16:10 teaches us to expect that God's Holy One would die, but would rise before his body began to decompose. With that expectation, just two Psalms earlier, 
we can see the death of Christ himself in these very verses. Jesus called out to God from the grave, and he was heard. What does this mean for you and me? Well, if you belong to Jesus, God will save you from the cords of death, too. The Bible promises in 2 Corinthians 4.14 that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Your body may die, but you will live. And how did God save David? God's answer was as dramatic and overwhelming rescue. When, when God rose from his throne in heaven, the earth itself trembled in the presence of its creator. Psalm 18.7 says, Then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations also. The mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. God's anger at the way his king is being treated echoes his anger that was introduced in Psalm 2.5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them at his fury. Psalm 18, 7 through 19 is a fuller description of the same conflict and the rebellion against God and his anointed that David has been presenting in the Psalms from the beginning. David's description is a theophany, an attempt which is an attempt to describe the overwhelming presence of an infinite God in this world. God's presence caused earthquakes, smoke, fire, wind, hail, fire, and arrows, and lightning. As far as we know, David never physically experienced the awesome events of verses 7 through 15. This is figurative language that the scripture uses to describe the indescribable. What human words could we use to explain the awesome majesty of Almighty God when he steps into the world? These descriptions are to give us a sense of the terrifying presence of the Lord God. In fact, David borrowed from this language from the awesome displays of God's majesty in the days of Moses and Joshua, verses 7 through 11, they echo Israel's experience of God's presence at Mount Sinai. When God gave the Ten Commandments, the sky was filled with clouds and lightning. The mountain was surrounded by smoke and clouds of thick darkness. God descended in fire. And the whole mountain trembled, Exodus 19, 16 through 20 tells us. Verses 12 through 14 echo God's fighting on behalf of Israel during the conquest of the land under Joshua. Verses 15 clearly echoes the parting of the Red Sea when the Lord opened a path on dry ground through the waters. Charles Spurgeon says this of this passage. David has in mind's eye, his mind's eye the glorious manifestation of God in Egypt at Sinai and on different occasions to Joshua and the judges. And he considers that his own case exhibits the same glory of power and goodness and that therefore he may accommodate the descriptions a former displays of divine majesty into his own hymn of praise. What's the point? The same God who rescued Israel from Egypt was powerfully at work in David's life. The victory God gave him over his enemies is on par with these major events in salvation history. The giving of the law at Sinai, the, the parting of the Red Sea, and the conquest of the land. Why was David's victory on a scale with a great Old Testament event like the Exodus? Well, when God rescued David, this pointed forward to God's rescue of us in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus cried out to God, the earth shook, the darkness descended on the land, and God threw him up from death because he was his beloved son. Man rejected Christ, but God delighted in Christ by rising, raising him from the dead. David was part of the larger drama of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. We'll learn this in Psalm 18, 20 through 29. This is more clear as we see 
why God saved him. In fact, in verse 20 of Psalm 18, David insists that God rescued him because of his integrity, saying this, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands, he rewarded me. David claims to be righteous because of his clean hands. This means he did not have blood on his hands. He had kept the law of Moses with its rules and its statutes, verse 22 says. To make the claim of innocence was even bigger in verse 23. He says, I was blameless. In this psalm, his blameless character mirrors that of God himself. Verse 30 uses the same word to describe God's conduct. This God, his way is perfect, blameless. The word of the Lord proves true. David claims absolute purity and integrity. David was indeed a man after God's own heart. Throughout the book of 1 Kings, David is a yardstick, the gold standard against whom the rest of the kings of Israel are measured. And yet David, we need to be clear, was not without sin. 1 Kings 15.5 remembers David's great flaw, saying this, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. When David sinned with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, he started by breaking the 10th commandment. He covered another man's wife. Then he broke the 7th commandment by committing adultery and the 6th commandment by having Uriah killed. This was stealing the 8th commandment. He lied to the ninth commandment. The affair dishonored his parents, the 5th commandment, and brought shame on the name of God, the 3rd commandment. And when David claims that he is blameless in verse 23, He's not talking about himself here. <laughs> David himself says in Psalm 14, 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. But David was a prophet. And he foresaw and spoke about the absolute innocence and the purity of Christ. And God answered the Lord Jesus and delivered him from death precisely because of the sinless life of Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ could say in uh, verse 33, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. David stated a fundamental principle for our relationship with God in verses 25 through 26, which says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. God responds to us in kind. He reveals himself as good to those with good hearts. He hides his goodness from those who hide from him. We cannot fool God. We cannot manipulate God. He can throw curveballs with the best of us. In the Old Testament, God Jacob was a schemer. He tricked Esau out of his birthright and tricked Laban out of his flocks. How did God save scheming Jacob? God had a scheme of his own. He let him think his own son Joseph was dead and surprised him with grace. God knows how to deal with tricky people. In the book of Job, Elihu says, For according to the work of a man, he, God, will repay him, and according to his ways, he'll make it befall him. Job 34, 11. The good news is that God is gracious to the humble. In verse 27 of Psalm 18, David says, You save a humble people. If you belong to Christ, his goodness and his purity are given to you, so that when God looks at your life, he sees the blameless obedience of none other than the Lord Jesus. Your heart is like an onion, and Jesus is like sarin wrap. When God picks you up to smell you, he smells the goodness of Jesus all over you. His plans and his purposes for you are good. He will order all the events of your life to bless you and to make you more like Christ. David's heart continues to sing as he looks back 
over his career as a warrior, a general, and a king, God had been even more faithful and good to him. And David describes how God strengthened him in verses 30 through 45 of Psalm 18. And he begins in verse 32 with God's equipping, saying, God equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. When a soldier goes off to boot camp, the army begins to train him for combat, issues him equipment, prepares him to serve the military. Verses 33 through 36 describe God's boot camp for David. God gave David speed and agility, making his feet like the feet of a deer, verse 33 says. God trained him in the use of weapons. If a, bow of bron- if a bow of bronze in verse 34 refers to a physical bow that David used, it may have been a wooden bow with a bronze decoration or a bow with a bronze-tipped arrows. But this is most likely a poetic way to describe the enormous strength that God gave him for David. It was as if he could bend solid bronze. God also provided him with armor, salvation like a shield in verse 35. And like the army corps of engineers, God cleared a road for his feet. David's experience of God's equipment for battle is a wonderful description of our Lord Jesus. He, Jesus came as a warrior to fight spiritual battles against Satan and this fallen world. Demons could not stand before him. His enemies could not refute his wisdom. He completed his conquest by his obedience to death, even death on a cross. If you are a believer today, you have the spiritual weapons and equipment through Jesus Christ for the battle. In fact, Ephesians 6, 12 through 18 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You see, all of this is because, dear Christian, you are in Christ. God equips us for the battle through the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you wearing today the armor of God? Is the truth of God's word your belt? Are your vitals protected by the righteousness of Christ? Do you have the agility, the fleet of a deer, from the gospel of peace? Are you holding the shield of faith in front of you? When you begin to doubt God's goodness or his care for you, you need to lift up your shield and tell yourself the truth from God's word. David describes his victories in verses 37 through 45. Interestingly, David's enemies include both foreigners and fellow Jews. In Psalm 18:43, he says, "You delivered me from strife with the people. You made the head me the head of the nations. People whom I have not known served me." Here, the people refer, refers to Israel, and it's true. To the end of his life, much of David's conflict was with fellow Jews. It took seven years for the northern tribes to accept him as king after Saul died, and they were quick to turn against him and follow Absalom. David also conquered surrounding nations, and some foreigners did submit to him when they heard word of his victories. David's victory points forward to the greater victories of his descendant, the Lord Jesus. 
As the son of God, Jesus experienced conflict with his fellow Jews. How did God deliver Jesus from his strife with the fellow Jewish people? God allowed Jesus to be put to death by the hands of sinful men, and then God raised him up on the third day. They rejected him, but God vindicated him and delivered him up from the cords of death. We foreigners hear about the victory of this risen Messiah, and we obey him because of the grace of God that we have received through the finished and sufficient work of Christ. Jesus not only defeated human enemies, he crushed our greatest enemies, death and the devil. On the cross, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14 says. He won this victory over Satan for all of his people, for you and for me, his victory is our victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27 says this, Even more through his conquering death, Jesus conquered death, the scriptures say, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God established David's kingdom as as a scale model of the greater kingdom of Jesus Christ. God is not absent from this world, but is very present, giving his son Jesus victory in the world. He is not distant. He's near. He is not weak. He's mighty. With the eyes of faith, we see the earth tremble and the mountain smoke of the gospel goes forward across this world. So David ends Psalm 18 as a prophet, praising God that Jesus, his offspring, would experience salvation like he did. Psalm 18, 49 through 50 says this, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed. To David and his offspring forever one day, you see Christ's victory will be complete. We will hear a voice from heaven saying what Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then we will celebrate with joy in euphoria that makes VJ Day seem like nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is sure. And not only is it sure, but that it is trustworthy. That that behind the word of God is you, Lord, You are rock, our fortress, our deliverer. Titus 1-2 says, you are the God who never lies. 2 Corinthians 1-20 says that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Lord, help us in the midst of whatever we have going on in our lives to trust to trust your word and to trust the son of God and the son of man, the Lord Jesus in all of life. Help us to lean as Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you, to trust you, to hope in you, to cling to you in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the difficulty of our lives. As we have discovered in this passage, there is a day coming and yet future, when you will come to bring an end to all of your enemies. And yet now, Lord, give us boldness that comes from the grace of God and that comes from the revealed word of God that testifies of you, Lord. 
Help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Help us, Lord, to not cheapen your grace, but to live by costly, the costly grace of the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for us in our place and for our sin. And Lord, give us hearts of compassion. As we, as Paul, with Paul in 2 Timothy 4, we eagerly long for the day of the Lord. And so, Lord, in, in the here and now, give us hearts of compassion. Give us hearts that honor you by bearing fruit, as Galatians 5, through 23 says. And help us, Lord, to honor you in all of life and to point others to the sufficient Savior and King who alone can satisfy us, who alone can bring sinners to himself, them, to himself, to Christ alone, and save. And Lord, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our situations, may we look at to and trust Christ, knowing that he understands everything that we are going through, and yet, as Hebrews 2 and 4 say, you never sinned. And so, Lord, help us to go to you who know our hurts, you who are a rock of refuge, our very present help in time of need. You are our king. Help us to go to our high priest and to trust you more. To lay our petitions as Philippians 4 tells us. Help us to pray the Lord's prayer. Help us, Lord, to trust you. And help us to see that that the trials and the, the things of this life are only temporary. They are, for us who are your people, they are the worst that we will ever have. Because your kingdom is coming, we have hope and we have purpose. Because as John 14, 26 says, you have gone ahead and prepared a place for us. We have an eternal home where we will stand before you forever in worship and adoration, and we will bow, and as 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 those elders did in, in Revelation 4, before the throne of God forever, forever singing praise to you who alone is worthy of all of our adoration and all of our praise. So Lord, help us. Help, help us not just to sing. It is well with our soul. Lord, help us to help it to be truly well with our soul. And Lord, if it's not, may you by your spirit bring conviction and the hope of the word and the help of your people and the truth of your word to bear and the life of your people. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.